Okay, friends, we're going to read God's Word together now. Uh, Remember, we started 2 Corinthians last week. If you'd like a Bible, uh, they're being handed out now, so just place your hand in the air and one of our ushers will bring you one. So we're reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul has just uh, introduced himself and uh, uh, talked about the God of comfort and how uh, it is through prayer that we comfort one another. Uh, You can find 2 Corinthians 1 on on page 1023. And I'm starting from verse 12. So he continues. Indeed, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you, you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely, just as you have pastorally understood us, that we are your reason for pride just as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. Because of this confidence, I plan to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit and to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. Now, when I planned this, was I of two minds? Or what I planned, do I plan in a purely human way? so that I say, yes, yes, and no, no, at the same time. God is faithful. Our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him we also say, Amen, to the glory of God. Now it is God who strengthens us together with you in Christ and who has anointed us. He has also put his seal on us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a down payment. I call on God as my witness, on my life, that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. I do not mean that we lorded over your faith, But we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. In fact, I made my mind up about this. I would not come to you on another painful visit. For if I cause you pain, then who will cheer me other than the the one being hurt by me? I wrote this very thing so that when I came, I wouldn't have pain from those whom I ought to ought to give me joy because I am confident about all of you that my joy will also be yours. For I wrote to you with many tears out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Thank you, Mark. Please keep your Bibles open to 2 Corinthians as we look at uh, this section of uh, God's Word. Uh, Why don't we pray together? God is speaking to us. We pray that we'll listen. Let's pray. 
Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together around you in your word. We pray that you'd help us to listen, to open our hearts and minds, that we might know the truth and be transformed by it. Help us to know Jesus and his power and glory and mercy, and that it would change our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want you to imagine a resume or a CV, a whole business strategy that goes something like this. In fact, maybe you're watching a TED talk, you know, those kind of leadership purpose talks. And here is the speaker and they, they go something like this. My marketing strategy is so divisive, so offensive that everywhere I go, I'm usually kicked out of town. The product that I offer people is viewed so badly that when I try to interest people in it, I get thrown in prison. When I open one of my businesses in a new area, it usually causes riots. Hmm. There we go. I have frequently experienced business partners pulling out, abandoning me, losing interest, and leaving me completely isolated. My campaign has met with so many challenges that I am often so poor, I have nothing to eat, nothing to wear, and nowhere to live. And I'm here today to invite you to invest absolutely everything you have into my business venture and to commit it all by following my example and doing exactly the same thing with your whole life. Now, how about that for a sales pitch, for a business model? Well, in a way, that is a lot like what Paul does in his letter to the Corinthians. He keeps flipping upside down people's expectations of what ministry success, of, of what failure, but also what Christian life looks like. What does it look like to belong to God? What does it look like to have the blessed life and be fruitful? Because Paul had planted this church in Corinth. He'd spent a year and a half, 18 months with them. He loved them very much. But in his first letter, he'd strongly challenged the Corinthians because of their worldly attitude to leadership. Remember, they were divided up into little cliques. I belong to this group and I'm different to you and that kind of stuff. But he challenged them on their worldly view of morality, their worldly view of power, even the way they did their church meals. And what has happened in the meantime is some false teachers have come to the church at Corinth, calling themselves the super apostles, we read about them later in this letter to Corinthians, they've said about gaining influence in the church by undermining Paul, by eroding confidence in Paul, questioning whether he really is that impressive. Is he worth listening to? And in our passage today, we see Paul begin to address the disappointment that the Corinthians feel in him because he was unimpressive. Remember back in 1 Corinthians Chapter 2, he says, oh, I came in weakness and fear and much trembling. He didn't meet worldly standards of the amazing so-called super apostles of 2 Corinthians 11 and 12. But he also addresses the disappointment the church felt over his apparent failure and breaking a promise that he said he would come and visit them, but he hasn't. Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 3 to 9, can read it another time. He wrote to them and said, look, I'm coming to you and I will stay a while with you. I'm not just passing through. I'm actually going to invest time to encourage you. But clearly it hasn't happened. But he doesn't want the church in Corinth to judge him or his apostleship by worldly measures. 
He wants them to see and understand things from God's perspective, namely through the lens of the cross of Christ. Because here's the thing, as you understand and as you view the world in light of what Jesus did on the cross, then everything will begin to make sense. And so first in our passage today, we get to look at Paul's conscience. You see it there in verse 12. He says, this is our boast. The testimony of our conscience is that we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you with godly sincerity and purity, not by human wisdom, but by God's grace. Now, last week's passage, he's just told them how much suffering he went through, how much hardship in his ministry throughout Turkey and Syria, that kind of area, how weak and broken and overwhelmed he felt. He's just described a ministry that kind of fell apart and was marked by great affliction and almost death. But Paul's conscience is clear. People might feel like dismissing him. They might feel like writing him off. People might be able to find others who look way more impressive. But he is happy to boast. And not in a prideful, selfish way, but with humble confidence that rests in God and in God's power and the priority of God's word. He says, we have conducted ourselves towards the world and towards you. We have lived with godly sincerity and purity because that is how you measure a ministry. Not in hits on the website or likes on Instagram or how popular you are or funny or rich or successful or impressive. Not how many book deals or conferences or is your church the it church. But God-centered sincerity and purity. And because they have lived and walked and conducted themselves not according to the world's wisdom, but according to God's grace. That's the contrast. You can live by the world's wisdom or you can live by God's grace. There are your options. And remember back in 1 Corinthians 1, Paul had said, the message of the cross is foolishness and weakness to the world. It's a stumbling block to the world. But the cross is in fact the wisdom and the power of God. And that's how we lived. We believe in the suffering crucifixion of Christ and we live that out. So there is Paul's pure conscience. Puts trust not in the superficial, selfish, worldly thinking, it just passes away like vapour, but in the power of God's grace. There's his conscience, at least to his concern, in verses 13 to 14. He wants the Corinthians to understand. Let me read those verses. For we are writing nothing to you other than what you can read and also understand. I hope you will understand completely, just as you have partially understood us, that we are your reason for pride, just as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. He wants this to be clear and for them to totally get this truth. Instead of being embarrassed and ashamed of Paul and his ministry and his suffering and his hardship, instead of assessing it in a worldly way and kind of cringing because he seems so feeble and pathetic, he wants them to grasp that just as Christ's suffering and rejection and sacrifice demonstrated God's power and wisdom and mercy, so Paul's suffering and ministry does exactly the same. Which means we are your reason for pride, he says. Back in, chapter, uh, back in 1 Corinthians, they were prideful over their sin. He's saying, you should be proud of the suffering and hardship and weakness I demonstrate. 
because you're our source of pride in the day of the Lord Jesus. The Corinthians shouldn't be listening to the super apostles. The people who say God's work in your life will always look like success, will always look like skillfulness and impressiveness. Don't listen to those people and don't be embarrassed and ashamed of Paul and the gospel. Boast in those things, just as he does of them. And notice that the boasting and the pride rests in the day of the Lord. That's the day when what is hidden will be made known when what is true will be revealed, when what is glorious will be unveiled, when God's power is fully displayed. On that day, every knee will bow and every eye will see and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and those who put their faith in him will be vindicated. That day is how we measure our lives and our church and our service of God. Which means next we see Paul's confidence in verses 15 to 16. Because of this confidence, I planned to come to you first so that you could have a second benefit and to visit you on my way to Macedonia and then come to you again from Macedonia and be helped by you on my journey to Judea. See, Paul was confident in salvation he's confident in the power of the gospel he's confident in the hope that he has and they share the certainty that the corinthians and he have on the last day because he knew his ministry and his life were aligned with god's message which means he didn't waver when things got hard when he faced opposition and when people rejected him when he was unpopular persecuted and imprisoned he didn't change his confidence in the last day meant he wanted to spend time with the church he planned to see them. His confidence in their spiritual unity in Christ and mutual care for each other. So he makes plans for ministry. And those plans are informed not by how he feels or by what every other church is doing or what the other apostles are doing or what works in the business world, but by that day. Again and again, Paul states that his purpose in ministry is to see people saved and standing firm, mature in Christ on the last day. Colossians 1.28, he says, My ministry is to present Christ to every person so that I can present every person perfect in Christ. And he talks here about coming to the church with a second benefit, literally a double blessing. And it's because he had originally planned to visit them on the way back from Macedonia, then he planned actually to stop in there at Corinth on the way to Macedonia and then again on the way back. Two visits, a double blessing. For your blessing, but also for mine, he says, so that you can help me on my journey to Jerusalem and Judea. And so this was his confidence. But we've looked so far at Paul's conscience in ministry, his concern in writing, his confidence in the day of the Lord. But this brings us to their confusion the church's confusion on what happened with these travel plans. Verse 17. Now, when I planned this, was I of two minds? Or what I planned, do I plan in a purely human way so that I say yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? And I wonder if he's actually quoting some of the things that he's been accused of here. That the super apostles and others in the church are saying, look at this Paul guy, he's in two minds, he vacillates. 
He says one thing and does another. He breaks his promises. His word and his actions are different. He says yes, yes here, but no, no at the same time. This is how he is being undermined and questioned by those who want to influence the church in Corinth for their own purposes. By the way, those who've come to influence the church in Corinth and charge a lot of money to do it. Whereas Paul had gone to them for free. That's a big difference. They're in it for the cash, it turns out. But anyway, they're making this relatively small thing, these travel plans, they're turning it into a big deal and saying, look, if he fails at organisation, if he fails at planning like this, he must fail at leadership. If he can't be trusted with the simple basic things like exactly when he's going to get there, then he can't be trusted with the teaching of God's word. If he said he was coming and he didn't, then we can ignore his teaching, we can ignore his message, we can ignore the gospel, and we can do whatever we like. That's basically the logic. They're saying not only is Paul weak, powerless, unimpressive, but he actually doesn't care. He can't be trusted. They're questioning his character and his integrity. That's the confusion that they have, but Paul's defense is pretty powerful. He knows that the issue of his travel plans is just an excuse to question his leadership, which is itself an excuse to ignore the confronting bits of God's word. And so he goes straight to the issue that matters and reminds them of God's confirmation. Let me read from verse 18. As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus, Timothy and I, did not become yes and no. On the contrary, in him, it is always yes. For every one of God's promises is yes in him. Therefore, through him, we also say, Amen, to the glory of God. Now, at this point, it becomes very clear that Paul is not Australian. Because we're more than happy to say, yeah, nah, to everything. We say yes and no all the time. Somehow, in the sophisticated rules of Australian English, we can say yes and no and know what we mean. It's hard to explain to others what we mean, but we know it. But Paul's point here is, notice he says, you're questioning, but actually God is faithful. Our word is true. The word we spoke to you, the message that we proclaimed to you, what we preached to you, is the message of God. And then it's almost like he uses the full, rich title of our Lord, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the anointed King. You've got a problem with me, you've got a problem with him, because all I did was preach him among you. All I did was preach Jesus Christ and him crucified, and he is not yes and no. He's not maybe, in between, sort of, we'll see, I'll get back to you on that. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God's yes to every single one of His promises. Every promise God has ever made. And He has made plenty. As many promises as there are, they're fulfilled in Christ. All of God's promise of blessing and peace and joy and love and goodness and purpose and fellowship and forgiveness of strength and hope, and a kingdom, and a heaven, and salvation, and sanctification, and glorification. Everything God has ever promised is made possible in whom? In Christ. In Him, they are all yes. He's the yes to all of God's promises. And we need to keep remembering this as we read God's Word. 
Because from the very beginning, Satan, the evil one, has been at work spinning God's yes until it sounds to us like a no. God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat every tree in the garden, apart from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Satan turns that into what? Satan says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? He turns God's yes into a no. And he's still attacking us with the same lie today, which diminishes our confidence in God's word. Every time we sin, it's because we think God's yes is actually a no. So ask yourselves this question. Are sinners welcomed by God, forgiven for free, washed clean by his blood, the blood of Jesus Christ? The answer to that is yes. But Satan says, look, that that is actually a no. Because you're not good enough for God. You have too much sin, too much guilt. Jesus isn't enough. You should do it yourself, but you're never going to be able to. God's very clear, yes, Satan keeps work to say, well, actually, that's a no. Are we free to live under God's sovereign kingship, under his care, under his protection? Yes. Are Christians completely free to pursue a life of righteousness and purity and good works and love? Yes, that's perfect freedom. Satan says, well, actually, that's a no. No, you can't rule your life. You can't do things your own way. You can't do all the fun things that you desire. God is a spoilsport who keeps saying no. That's a lie. Are we free to express sexuality the way our perfect God intended? In marriage between a man and a woman for our pleasure and for his purpose? Yes. Are men and women free to be who God created them to be, beautifully, distinctively, uniquely. Yes. Satan spares, actually, that's really a no, isn't it? That's really a no. Look at how God limits you. Look at how God restricts you. The truth is God is faithful. And to every single thing that is good for us, every single thing that is a blessing for us, a spiritual joy for us, that is a benefit for us, a comfort, a kindness, and expresses love to them all, God says, yes, in Christ Jesus. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, ours in Christ Jesus. Every one of God's promises, yes, in Christ Jesus. Therefore, Paul says, through Christ Jesus, through him, we also say, amen, to the glory of God. Now, amen, if you like, is a Hebrew way of saying, yes. When Jesus in the gospel says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's the word, amen, amen, I say to you. It means that's right. It's a statement of agreement. We might use the the, the term, absolutely. Someone says something, we agree with them, absolutely. 100%. It's an emphatic way of saying yes. Maybe that's how we should finish our prayers sometime. Someone prays, and in Jesus' name, and we all say, absolutely. Because Jesus Christ is God's yes to us. Yes, I love you. Yes, I forgive you. Yes, I accept you. Yes, I want you. Yes, you are mine. Then through Jesus Christ, we give our yes to God. Yes to his glory. Yes to his promises. We say absolutely, 100%, truly, truly, God is glorious. Because listen to the four mighty works of God that Paul lists off in the next couple of verses, verse 21, 22, four mighty declarations of yes from God towards his people. Firstly, it is God who strengthens us 
together with you in Christ, he says. The word strengthen there in verse 21 means establish or confirm, to put something beyond all doubt, to make something unshakable. That's what God has done in us, Paul says, together with you. So think about it. If you're questioning my place or my standing or my integrity, if you're questioning my credentials, says Paul, well, I have what you have. The promises of God established in Christ. We share it together. And secondly, he says, God is the one who has anointed us. Now, that's a big call, given that Christ's title is the anointed one. The term anointed means to literally to pour oil, to apply oil to a person, most often as a mark that they are special, they are chosen. It's what they did to kings back in the Old Testament. That here God is anointing us, God is setting us apart, commissioning us for a special service, for a special place in his kingdom. It's the service of proclamation and ministry. And 1 John 2 verse 20 should come up on the screen. 1 John 2 verse 20, John writes and says, You have an anointing from the Holy One and all of you know the truth. And then a few verses down in verse 27, the anointing you have received from him remains in you and you don't need anyone to teach you. That's the anointing that we have. We know the truth. We proclaim the truth. We are commissioned to serve. So God has grounded us in Christ. God has commissioned us for service. And then thirdly, we see he gives us authority. Thirdly, God has sealed us. Now you seal something to show ownership to show authenticity, but also to protect. It's like a wax seal on a letter that the, the king has kind of stamped his seal imprint there. Then it says, this is from the king. It belongs to the king. It has his authority, as well as it seals and protects the contents. We have been sealed. God looks at us and says, they are mine. They are authentic. They are mine. Don't touch them. They're protected. They are my possession." All because, fourthly, he's given us his Holy Spirit in our hearts as a down payment. God himself dwells by his Spirit in our hearts. He's given us himself. That's a big yes, isn't it? That God says, I'm going to live in you and be with you at every moment of your life. I am yours and you are mine, says God. That's a massive yes. He lives in our hearts as the guarantee, as the deposit the pledge, the engagement ring, the down payment of what is to come. This is all what we share together, says Paul. So you question who I am and what I have. Well, all I have is everything God could give and it's the same as what you have. The amazing blessing of God. Well, so far we've seen that Paul's conscience is clear his concern is their understanding. His confidence is the day of the Lord. Their confusion is whether he can be trusted, but God's confirmation is the gospel. Every promise is yes in Christ Jesus. Lastly, we see in this passage Paul's compassion. If you could think of a uh, caring, loving, tender-hearted word that's C-O-N rather than C-O-M, let me know and I'll fix the outline. Uh, but we get to the reason that he didn't actually come and visit them. He says, this is the reason. It's funny, he's gone through the gospel first because that's the big thing. And then he says, here it is, verse 23. I call on God as a witness on my life that it was to spare you that I did not come to Corinth. 
I do not mean that we lord it over your faith, but we are workers with you for your joy because you stand firm in your faith. Calling on God as his witness to affirm the truth of what he says, Paul says, you think me not coming to you was a sign of weakness and failure? It was in reality an act of love. I intentionally didn't come because I wanted to spare you. He's saying, I love you guys so deeply. I've given my all for you. And I desperately want to spend fellowship with you. But if I had come, when I had intended, then I would have had to give you the hard, painful words of rebuke. And so in order to spare you that, in order to give you the chance, give you the time to take responsibility for yourselves, to get yourselves in order, to repent where you needed to, I delayed in coming. It's interesting, isn't it, that Paul knows there is a time for strong words, words of rebuke and exhortation, challenging, critical words. And there is a time to wait, a time to be patient, a time to be sensitive, a time to hold back. And in this again, you know what? He is reflecting the character and nature of God who time and time again shows patience with us. He holds back. He waits. He gives us the opportunity to repent. He gives us the chance to turn back to him. Paul himself experienced this in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16. This one should come up on the screen as well. He, he, he describes himself, formerly I was the worst of sinners, but I received mercy for this reason, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary, what? Patience. Paul's like, I got saved so God could, see, God could show publicly to everyone how patient he is. God has been extraordinarily patient with Paul and held back what he deserved that he would be saved. In fact, 2 Peter 3.15 says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. So Paul wanted to spare them. Paul wanted, he said, this is the time for me not to step in but notice he clarifies in verse 24, not that we lorded over you. He's saying, I'm not your taskmaster. I'm not your slave driver. I'm not your king or your pope who decrees and you all have to do what I say and bend down and you know, kind of wash my feet. And No, instead, we are workers with you for your joy. That's how Paul sees his leadership, working together with his people for their joy. And there are times when for real lasting joy, you need to apply painful discipline. When the loving thing is to say the hard thing. And there are times when you need to hold back. And when you need to allow time for joy to grow, joy together to come into full fruitfulness. So in chapter 2 verse 1, he goes on, he said, I made up my mind not to come on another painful visit. I want to be able to come and for you to experience joy of us being in right relationship, joy from being united in confidence in Christ, I want to experience the joy of seeing you living godly, sincere, holy lives. So I waited, and instead I've written this letter. But listen to the heart of Paul. Listen to how deeply he cares, how deeply he feels the burden of leading these people, even from a distance, their spiritual, eternal welfare. Listen to what he says there at verse 4. For I wrote to you with many tears 
out of an extremely troubled and anguished heart, not to cause you pain, but that you should know the abundant love I have for you. Paul has previously written to the Corinthians and those words were painful. It could be a reference back to 1 Corinthians. He says some pretty hard things in that letter. Some people think it's this third letter that's in between, a severe letter in between 1 and 2. Either way, I wrote it, he says, with tears in my eyes and anguish in my heart because I don't want to cause you pain. I want you to know the overflowing love I have for you. Never doubt my love for you, he says. I can't believe you're listening to those liars. But even as I say and do things that you find painful, it's always done for your joy, he says. It's always done for your salvation. It's always done for your comfort, for your blessing. And it costs me. Again, it's just like God. Because last week we saw that was exactly Paul's experience of God's love and God's comfort, wasn't it? The God who loves Paul says, actually, you need to go through some hard times, but it will strengthen you. It will cause you to trust and delight in Jesus even more. It will result in comfort and salvation overflowing to others. He's experienced that love and he shares it with others. So friends, when you see things, not the way the world does, but through the lens of the cross, then what looks weak and foolish and insignificant is actually revealed to be, in Christ, magnificent and eternal and glorious, just like the cross itself. And as a community of believers, as a gathering of God's established, anointed, sealed, indwelt people, there is a time for us to say the hard word to each other, the necessary word, and there is a time for us to wait. There's a time where we need to speak up even when it's painful and there's a time where we need to let the other person's wounds heal and give them time, whether it's when we're parenting our kids or whether it's in marriage or maybe it's in gospel teams together or as a church together. What matters is that everything is done out of gospel-focused love. Remembering that we are workers together for one another's joy. And especially remembering that every single one of God's promises is yes in Christ Jesus. So as we look at church, as we look at one another, at opportunities to serve and grow and give, at opportunities to be selfless, to be challenged and strengthened, in Christ our response should be exactly the same as God's when he sees church. Yes. So let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your love for us demonstrated perfectly in Jesus. Your love that says painful things to us that we need to change. We can't do it on our own. We are weak and broken and guilty. But your love that is tender and heals us and binds us and spiritually washes us clean. Father, thank you that we have experienced your love in Jesus. We pray that you'd help us to show that love to one another. Thank you for Paul. Thank you for taking this man who deserved nothing but your judgment and demonstrating in him your patience, your compassion and what it means to serve Jesus. Help us to be like him as he's like Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.